When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Today's episode is a recording of our first in-person debate since March 2020, when the first COVID-19 lockdown came into effect. It features economist Yanis Varoufakis and Gillian Tett of the Financial Times debating the question whether we can fix capitalism. It's a great conversation, and if you do enjoy it, remember you can watch all our in-person events now via live stream on intelligencesquared.com or join us in person if you're based in London or nearby. We hope you enjoy it, and now let's go to the episode. Good evening and welcome back. I'm Hannah Kay, executive producer at Intelligence Squared, and this is our first in-person event since March 2020. And I can't tell you how lovely it is, how lovely it is once again to be looking at a sea of faces. Welcome also to everyone who's watching the live stream and to all of you who've been supporting us by watching our events online in the last 18 months. It's been a fantastic support for us and we really couldn't have got by without you in these challenging times. So thank you very much. And now I'm going to hand over to our chair. She is a senior editor at The Economist and host of The Economist radio podcast. Please welcome Anne McAvoy. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah, very much indeed. And of course, we started with a really small topic. Can we fix capitalism? Uh, no point in, in messing about. We went for the, the big topic with intelligence uh, squared tonight. And I thought it was a, an interesting moment to step back, of course, from all the internal party, political party fighting and to, to invite two people with very wide-ranging views and very wide-ranging experience of the topic. But before they get their say, in the democratic manner, we thought that you should have your say first, or at least your show of hands a way of communicating with us. So we're going to ask first, who thinks capitalism, albeit with tweaks and reforms, is still the best economic system 
we've got. So if you think that, give us a wave. I like the way that Gillian voted for herself there. It's a good moment. And who thinks we need a completely new economic system? Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank God, because otherwise it was the wrong booking. Um, <laughs> but that was fairly clearly uh, capitalism can be fixed in, in our audience tonight. But I would say from Intelligence Squared debates I've done a few recently, there was quite a lot of shifting around once the people had heard the speakers. So the, that is really where we're going to go next. I would perhaps give them this challenge from the Marxist literary critic Frederick Jameson, who once said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. I wonder whether that is still the case. I'm going to uh, turn first. I think Yanis is, is going to, to lead us off tonight, if I read my annals true. Yanis Varoufakis will be known to many of you uh, from our screens and his fiery contributions to this debate. He was Greek finance minister from January to July 2015, a, a short period, but one in which he managed to be in the headlines most days. Um, he resigned, refusing to sign a loan agreement on the grounds it would worsen Greece's economic circumstances, which brought him into some conflict with Angela Merkel, who's just uh, leaving the international stage as German chancellor at the moment. Nowadays, he is chair of political economy at the University of Athens, as well as visiting professor of political economy at King's College London, a best-selling author of many books, including Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present, a bit of a clue there, I think, and a wonderful one, actually, which I remember talking to him about a few years ago called Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, A Brief History of Capitalism. I once interviewed Yanis and said, you're a bit of a champagne socialist, aren't you? And he said, no, no, not really, but so I don't like champagne, but I like very good white wine. <laughs> I hope that's still the case. Yanis Mopakis, the floor is yours. Five minutes on can we fix capitalism? Thank you, Anne. It is wonderful to be, to be back, not only at the Union Chapel, but also you know, with people in the same space. Okay, now the problem with these um, boys' games, you know, Oxford Union debates, is that uh, they force upon us a dichotomy. Either yeah. Either you're in favor of emotion or against emotion, which is fun, but not very helpful. Uh, so allow me to answer the question in my own way. I don't think it's an interesting question whether we should fix capitalism. Because capitalism, and this is something that I have managed to convince myself of in the last year or so, and with the subject of my next book, <laughs> um, I, I think that look, the, 2021 is a little bit like the 1790s when Adam Smith was writing The Wealth of Nations. In the sense that the world was feudal, but there were small pockets of capitalism that were emerging that Adam Smith managed to cotton onto. You know, Glasgow University was happening uh, just below him in the Clyde Valley. He could see it. But it was tiny. It was a speck of capitalist dust in uh, you know, a desert of feudalism. Still, Adam Smith managed to see that what was growing you know, under his window in the Clydes 
and in Manchester and elsewhere, uh, was infecting feudalism, and feudalism was not going to be on the way out. Even when Marx was writing the Communist Manifesto, in, of whose you know the first five six pages are appealing to capitalism, really all about you know breaking down superstition and you know ushering in new technologies and so on. It was a a kind of prequel to globalization, which was not actually taking place. He was um, ahead of his time. I think we are in a similar moment. I think that capitalism is on its way out, uh, not because the left, well, you know, our pathetic lot, have managed to overthrow. No, we have not done that. We, if anything, we have solidified capitalism. I'm talking about the left um, through our orchestrated idiocy. Uh, across many countries and continents. No, but capitalism is overthrowing itself in the same way that feudalism overthrew itself. Uh, and here's some food for thought and for criticism uh, by Gillian. Look, before we can have any meaningful discussion about capitalism, we have to define our terms. What is capitalism? Capitalism has transformed itself so magnificently over the centuries. You know, the capitalism of Adam Smith doesn't exist. It's not the baker, the, the brewer, and the butcher. Uh, since the Second Industrial Revolution, it was, you know, the Henry Fords, the Edisons, the you know, large monopoly or oligopoly capital. Then we had big government with uh, the New Deal and the Great Society. Then after that, we had financialized capitalism or interior capitalism. Yeah. It really has this capacity to transform itself. But throughout all these transformations, capitalism retained two main characteristics. First, the fuel that drives it is profit. Profitability. Profit, which then gets reinvested, becomes new capital, and the thing goes on. The second characteristic of capitalism is markets. Uh, the creation of the labor market, the, following the enclosures, uh, the eviction of the peasants from the lands created a mass of workers who then became the proletariat, the commodification of the land. Every process, production process, extraction process, is happening through markets. So, profits and markets, central pillars of capitalism. Looking around, I already see it's at a very early stage. Wherever we look at, we see capitalist relations. There's no doubt about that. In the same way that wherever Adam Smith looked around him, around the world, it's mostly, it was mostly feudal relations. But I think that I can already see the end of capitalism because, on the one hand, profits have ceased to be the fuel of the economic system we have. It is central bank money now. Without central bank money, the whole thing collapses, even the sectors that have big tech and so on, that are highly profitable. They are squeezing out all the other sectors and participating in ending the markets and replacing them with platforms. Amazon, Facebook, and so on, they are not alternative markets. They are new technological fiefdoms. You enter Amazon, you exit the marketplace. You exit capitalism. You enter a realm where everything that is being bought and sold is controlled by one algorithm, one person, one owner. This is like a fiefdom, only it's a techno, techno fiefdom. So for me, the the question is not, can we fix capitalism? The question is, is it true, 
is my hunch right that we are already moving into a post-capitalist system, which I call techno-feudalism, for want of a better term. And given that this techno-feudalism is highly at odds with liberalism, with Adam Smith, not just with socialists, what do we do? How do we plan our collective strategy for not becoming techno peasants within this global techno feudalism? You left us there hanging on a note where many of us have probably spent the day feeling like techno-peasants one way or the other as we, we struggled with the bits of technology which they told us long ago would make our lives easier and you know, seemed to take up about three hours of the day. So that's a really interesting challenge and particularly I'm going to hang on to that final point. We're going to hear a bit of to and fro and conversation between our panellists in, in just a, a moment which I'll, I'll moderate but we must hear from Julian Tett for the other side of the coin on fixing capitalism and no one better to discourse on that. Julian uh, is chairman of the US editorial board and US editor in, at large at the Financial Times. She has covered capitalism I think in how many countries would you say of your career Julian? Quite a lot. Quite a lot, she said, <laughs> mystifyingly. But certainly not only American capitalism, but the UK, Asia. You were based in Japan for a while. So you, you have a truly global uh, prism on this. She's also co-founder of the very successful Moral Money section of the Financial Times, which is dedicated to environmental, social, and governance, i.e. ESG in the new lingo, news that investors and companies are increasingly embracing. Her new book is Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life, and she's a former academic anthropologist uh, by background in her first degree. So a very broad view of capitalism, Gilliam, what it means, how it works, and I'm suspecting how you think it might be fixed. Well, thank you very much indeed, Anne. And it's great to be here tonight. I feel at a disadvantage with Yanis as my adversary because not only have I ever tried to run an economy, but sitting here in Islington, he is on his home turf, home pitch, and I'm not. But I'm going to try and defend capitalism, but not the current form of capitalism. Because I'm trained as an anthropologist, um, and one of the things anthropologists spend a lot of time doing is look at the gap between what people say they do and what they actually do, between rhetoric, between the rituals and symbols they aspire to, and the actual lived reality. And the core of my argument is that the capitalist flag, the flag of Adam Smith that Janus talked about, has been waved around a lot in recent years by politicians, by business leaders, by financiers, yes, by financial journalists. But what we have today is not what Adam Smith sketched out. To understand that, you have to go back and realize that there are two books of Adam Smith and only one has been focused on in recent years. The Wealth of Nations lays out a theory about why competition is good. I happen to believe, to channel, I hate to say it, Boris Johnson by quoting Winston Churchill, that actually competition and profit is the worst way to organize an economy except for all the others that have been tried. 
I say that having lived in the former Soviet Union where I did my research and seen other, other visions um, playing out. But when Adam Smith laid out his, two, his vision of capitalism, his vision of market forces, he didn't use the word capitalism, his vision of markets, he had two books, The Wealth of Nations, about competition and trade, and The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, which is one of the inspirations for the Moral Money column, which I co-founded at the Financial Times. And that vision essentially argued that there were four components you needed to make markets effective. You needed to have free access to markets. People had to be able to take part in them. You need to have free access to prices. People needed to know what the prices were in a transparent way. You needed to have an elision of ownership between the people who managed ventures and actually owned them, which in Adam Smith's day were mostly family-owned owned firms, so it wasn't a problem. And you needed to have a shared moral, ethical, and legal base, which basically provided a foundation for people to have shared values and shared trust. Remember, the roots of the word credit come from the Latin to trust. And without that, it's very hard to have a market. Now, if you dial back and think about what was happening two decades ago on Wall Street, you can see that all four of those components were missing. People did not have equal access to the markets because guess what? It was powerful cartels on Wall Street and the city of London who were running the show. They didn't have access to prices because yes, you can get access to stock market prices, but there's many other prices in finance that are not visible to the wider public. There wasn't effective elision of ownership and management because guess what? The people who were supposedly owning companies, which is all of us for our pension funds, tended to outsource that to asset managers who were largely asleep at the wheel and didn't understand what was happening inside companies or banks. And there hasn't been a shared moral framework, or even one could argue a legal and ethical framework, essentially putting what's been happening in business and finance into the wider social context. Anthropologists are obsessed with context, obsessed with a sense of consequence of what business and finance does. I would argue that many of those shortcomings are found in other areas of modern capitalism, such as the tech sector, which Yanis just spoke about. I'd actually agree with you that there is a fundamental problem of monopoly power, of a lack of transparency, of a lack of access inside the tech sector as well. And so I would agree with you that capitalism actually isn't particularly effective there at the moment because we don't actually have that at the moment. We have a gap between rhetoric and reality. And yet, I personally still think that that vision of competition, that vision of using profits to be reinvested back in growth, that idea that actually innovation occurs when you have some friction, when you have a sense of personal responsibility, that is still a good set of principles to be using to be driving an economy forward. So, for those reasons, I remain a fan of Adam Smith when you look at both books. And I'll just leave you with two last ideas, which again infuses how I see capitalism, how I'd like to see capitalism play out. As an anthropologist, again, I'm fascinated by words and language. I don't know how many of you know here 
where the word company comes from originally. I talk about it in my book. It originally comes from Latin, from old, old Italian actually, con panio, meaning with bread. Because companies were originally seen as groups of people who ate together and then did business together. Similarly, I don't know how many of you know where, where the word finance comes from, but it actually comes from old French finir, meaning to finish, which sounds completely bizarre because people think that finance is basically never-ending loops of money going round and round like sugar in a candy floss maker, building a bigger and bigger puff of speculation. That's kind of meaningless. But originally, finance was about paying off blood debts and finishing actual tangible commercial transactions. It was a means to an end, not an end in itself. So to go back to Adam Smith, if you put those two books together, the vision of capitalism that I uphold is one where companies are recognized to be about humans and groups of people competing together, building things together, and money is a means to an end, the fuel that drives forward the economy and growth. And I personally think that is a vision that we should be upholding and aspiring to today. And I would say, last of all, I realize Yanis and I both got the dark blue shirt memo. So we may end up agreeing more than we disagreeing, sadly. <laughs> Effortlessly stylish. I thought I'd just, um, just pick up a couple of points there to, to question both of you. Yanis, I was just trying to put together a list in my head, and it's a pretty obvious one. But it goes something like this. Karl Marx, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Stalin, boo, uh, any number of post-war communist leaders and supporters after the great rift in, in Europe, of course, in, in 1939 to 45, 1968, radicalism, Maoism, and uh, on home turf, Jeremy Corbyn, um, <laughs> sort of in, in illustrious company. Um, it, you see that the the line of argument there is, and each of them has seen the death throes of capitalism in some form. And yet, here we all are having a discussion about whether we can fix it. What makes you think that this time it's different factor applies to 2021? You're quite right. Uh, every socialist, and I count myself as one, um, has always been like a stopped clock that eventually tells the the right time. Um, you know, we kept uh, predicting a massive financial collapse ever since I was, you know, 10. And it happened in 2008. So eventually, you know, all our predictions come true. Uh, it doesn't mean we were right analytically about it. Look, um, why do I think that um, this time it's different? <laughs> to quote famous economists. Uh, first, I'll repeat some of the things I said, but in a different manner, hopefully, helpfully. Take what happened in the summer of 2020 here in London. I think it was the 12th of August when you had the announcement uh, that uh, your GDP fell by more than 20% for the first time in the history of British capitalism. Remember that? August 2020. Uh, the market expectations were for a fall of about 12 to 13%. It was much, much more than that. And yet, 15, 16 minutes later, the London Stock Exchange went up. Yeah. That has never happened before in the history of capitalism. Uh, 
Why did it happen? For a very logical reason. Because market players thought, oh my God, 20 plus, then it's immediately, nanoseconds later, they thought, okay, if we're panicking, the Bank of England are panicking. So they're going to print loads of money and they will pump it in our direction, okay, to refloat the disaster. So let's keep buying. Okay, now, this is simply a little tale that I tell in order to capture the manner in which financial markets have completely decoupled from really existing capitalism. And if you think about it, in 2008, we had a 1929, our generation's 1929. The difference with 1929 was that unlike the Hoover administration in the United States in 29 that let the banks fall, uh, the G7, G20, April 2009, Gordon Brown, London, uh, they decided to refloat them. So they went into a spasm of printing mountain ranges of money to refloat the financial markets, which they did very successfully. Proof that if they want to do something, they do. They do it, right? But ever since they did that, and they did it in a staggered way, the European Central Bank really began doing it in 2012 and then went all out in 2015 with Mario Draghi, 1st of March. But the way I see it now, capitalism has completely been hooked on central bank money. And therefore, you know, why is Jeff Bezos $50 billion richer than he was at the beginning of the pandemic? It's not the profits of Amazon, of his businesses. It is the increase in the share market. Because what happens is QE means that uh, you know, the central bank prints money, they give it, they effectively give an, a, high, a larger overdraft to you know, the Barclays, Barclays banks, Deutsche banks of the world, they look at you people, they say, oh, no, no, we're not going to lend them because they're hopeless. So they pick up the phone, they call Volkswagen, Siemens, Alstom, you know, Google, Apple, and they say, do you want a few billion? Those people don't need money because they already have stashes of money, which itself is a problem because corporations should be borrowing, not, not saving. But they take the money because it's free. And they take it and they go to the stock exchange and they buy back their own shares. Okay, so now you have a, a bifurcation of, uh, uh, of capitalism. You have the companies that maintain profitability because it's not a monopoly that they have. General Motors had a monopoly or an oligopoly. Amazon is different. It's a platform. It means that you exit capitalism, you exit the market, and you go into a place that where everything that's sold or bought are controlled by one company, one algorithm. Well, that's let's, very let's different. Because there's quite a lot in there, Yanis. So let, let Julian come okay, back. Let's let me just on, the, on that QE, quantitative let, easing, money sloshing sure, at that Just one, one just, final just phrase. Then I can throw it over to you. Yeah, one final phrase. Gesture. So if, if what I'm saying holds water then Adam Smith is simply not relevant. He's as relevant as Karl Marx was in the Soviet Union when you were there. In other words, not at all. So you're saying Adam Smith's not relevant because the financial markets today don't tie into the real economy and because essentially you have platform monopolies on technology. Yes, and even the companies that are not platform companies, through private equity takeovers, they're being taken over, loaded by, with debt, which is financialized. Those companies are then split up, asset stripped. So you have the squeezing of the capital sector, of, of what Adam Smith would consider to be the capital sector. You know, the squeezing of it completely until... All you have is central banks on the one hand, 
financial markets and the platforms. So let me turn around and say it like this. Would you believe that competition is a good thing in an economy? Absolutely. I wrote okay, a book about okay. It. let me ask four questions. Do you believe that prices are useful? Yes, yes, I've read my Hayek. Okay. I understand. Do you uh, believe that profits are a good thing as an incentive and that you should reinvest profit back into ventures? No. But I do believe okay, that. No, hang on, hang great. on. Jillian, wait, wait. Because, I've, you know, after, when you read this, you'll see. Um, there's a chapter in there called Markets Without Capitalism. Right? So I, in it, I try to answer your question by, in this book, I try to create a blueprint of if, how, how, how we could have done things differently. This is the book. So in, in, my, in my utopia, in, my, in this utopia, in the other now that I call it, uh, markets are essential because Iris, the anthropologist, modeled after you, right? as you know, <laughs> uh, she says that, you know, at some point that um, the only thing that stops uh, authoritarianism and a Soviet kind of gulag from descending upon us is markets and competition and freedom, freedom of enterprise. But the problem is that the, the moment you have share markets that are being effectively turbocharged through, through central bank money and you have the financialization that you experience and you ex- explain very nicely in the book, then the Competition dies. So your basic argument is with equity markets and the current form of equity markets and stockholding companies, if I understand it rightly. I mean, let me say this. If you believe that competition is valuable, if you believe that prices matter, if you believe in a diversification of different roles and specialist functions, yeah, and that's good. I believe in all that. Okay. Well, that doesn't make you sound very socialist, with all, be- all due respect. Well, that is not true. Uh, do you remember Oscar Lange? Sorry? Oscar Lange. Right. Do you remember Oscar Lange? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I may need to remind us. 1920s, uh, one of Friedrich von Hayek's great adversaries, the other was um, John Maynard Keynes. Oscar Lange was a socialist, communist actually, who believed in not a central, he was completely against the idea of Gosplan, of a central plan, but he was uh, in favor of what effectively I have tried to you know, to, to, to map out in this book um, a market where let me give you an example right uh, imagine a world where you join a corporation and you get one share in the same way that you enroll in university and you get a library card and that library card that one share gives you one vote it allows you to do stuff you know, borrow books participate in decision making and so on and then when you have to leave when you leave you take your capital out and you have to hand over your library card, your one share. Now, just for a moment, go along with this. Imagine you have a market where you have competition between companies that are owned by those who happen to work in them. And you have, you ask me whether I believe in profits. No, I don't, because if you have that system, you have net revenues. Because there is no distinction between profits and wages. Everybody profit shares. The company wants to maximize its revenues. There is no. There is competition, but there is no capitalism. 
It doesn't and there's no distinction profit. between wages and profits. Okay, the idea that workers get skin in the game, yes, absolutely. The idea they have some checks and balances and some involvement, absolutely. The idea you're going to organise 5,500 people into a committee to take strategic business decisions and take votes. Have you ever tried organising 10 people into taking swift decisions? Well, you know, I'm Greek, so I can't organise myself. I have five opinions. (laughs) Therein lies my point. I I think you have a slightly higher vision of what humans will do to left their own devices. No, but it doesn't do. have to be a committee. It doesn't have to be a committee. Firstly, look, in the well, company... Well, in practical if, terms, can, in you the company name, can, you, can you name one cooperative that has actually swelled in size and become a really effective operation? Okay, let me tell you that the company I'm referring to had 350 employees and $1.2 billion of revenue a year. And it worked really very well with completely flat management. So why aren't there more companies copying that? Because they're, they're being gobbled up. This is why. Because, you know, think of the, the trustee savings bank. Remember what happened to it? It was gobbled up. So the idea of cooperatives that work is well established from the 19th century in this country. You had cooperative banks, cooperative uh, supermarkets and so on that work magnificently. But in an environment, in an economic environment where, you know, the, 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 the large fish, it's the smaller fish, especially, you know, the smaller um, energetic fish. It's happening in, in Silicon Valley all the time. But the issue you know, is Google and so on, they're destroying competition by buying them up. So, you know, that company in particular, right, you have no, no idea, I mean, I'm sure you do, uh, the extent to which there were all these attempts by big money to buy it out. And and it will. That, it will go. But it will that's go. a separate issue. That's a separate issue because you're basically arguing two things. On the one hand, you have the question of what's the best way to organize a bunch of people who want to be in business and get money to fund that. Should they sit around as a happy cooperative and sing Kumbaya? And it take, doesn't have to be happy. It's not going to be happy. You unha- know that. Unhappy cooperative. Blue, blue. Or, <laughs> but that's one question, i.e., how do they get money to finance what they're doing? Um, and the second question then is, is there a regulatory structure to create a level playing field that stops the winners from essentially taking all and buying up the others? Ah, They're two separate is, questions. This is great. And I would agree on the second point that absolutely we need better umpires to create regulatory structures that stop winners taking all and doing unfair competition. It comes back to my four points for Adam Smith. On the question of how to organize companies, um, yes, cooperatives can sometimes work. Yes, I happen to think that with digital technology probably it's getting easier to organize that than before. And digital transparency is changing things radically. And I think in many ways, maybe the savior of capitalism. And I can talk about that if you want. However, I happen to think that in most cases, the ability to raise outside money from people who have a stake in a company, which is called an equity market, is a pretty efficient way of doing it unless, and I would agree with you, unless you have central banks printing oodles of cash which essentially is distorting prices right now. I don't like what the central banks have done in recent years yeah, at but all. You know what, Julian? It can't be otherwise. We are in this situation where now if central banks stop printing money, the whole thing collapses. So you're saying you don't like capitalism 2021 version, but no, there no, could no. be other No, what I'm saying is that you, that, 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 that you are being completely utopic 
in your I'm being utopic. Absolutely. You're being utopic. Well, <laughs> let's be utopic in, in, in a no, realistic you're way. Being... Shall we? <laughs> and no, I'm but wondering I think, why it wasn't utopia. I think the idea, for instance, the idea that. By the way, I think utopic sounds much trendier than utopia. I think that my, my utopia is more realistic than yours. The idea of going back to a capitalism that works <laughs> is absolutely impossible now. I want to move us on because I think we're in danger, uh, perhaps, on the markets and models. I just want to put a bit of a squeeze on, on Gillian on, on one point that, that I've heard, and this is the problem of the big tech monopolies and what that means. I mean, just to remind ourselves, the unprecedented levels of growth and consolidation. Yeah. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah, it, well, exactly. About Facebook? Yeah. Because what I'm saying is, what you is know, corporate it? law which says on one employee, one share, hey, that kills look, off the power look, of Facebook. What is your proposal? I was okay. say that. You, hang on, I have to get to be even Facebook? more awkward. Oh, my proposal in a second. <laughs> right. Gosh, it's through. Yeah, it's through. You are behaving beautifully. Um, <laughs> just in your way. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. What I was thinking about what you said about the regulator, which was an interesting thought, but there's an example, Julie. How many people, eminent people in... uh, America and elsewhere, run around in circles saying we need better regulation of tech companies. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't give up. Anyway, it just doesn't happen. And to this point, I think Yanis is right to be pushing on this. Yeah, sure. It would appear to be an area which is immune to the sort of reformist regulatory Okay, let me give my answer to Facebook, what I do about Facebook, and it's different from what you expect. There's one thing that Adam Smith got totally wrong. In fact, several things, but here's the most important thing for today. He thought that barter was an old-fashioned prehistoric practice that really just involved cavemen sitting around in caves swapping piles of berries for meat. 
And he presumed that barter would essentially die out once you invented money and credit. He was 100% wrong. Economists automatically assume that barter is old-fashioned and doesn't matter. Anthropologists, and I don't know if there are any anthropologists here tonight. This is your moment. Anthropologists know that barter is actually something which has often been around in many communities at the same time as money and credit. Anyone who's read David Graeber's wonderful book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, will know this. But also... it's going to help us with the tech? I'm going to tell you. Barter is alive and well today, big time, because Silicon Valley actually runs off barter. The wholesale swap of data for services... That is a bedrock of much of the tech sector today. It does not involve money, and we have no way of talking about it day to day except to say that it's free. And we tend to only focus on one aspect of this, which is how tech companies take our data. We don't look at the services. The reason I say this is important because actually we're missing a lot of things that are happening in the economy today and also in terms of corporate valuations. We're also missing something that I would expect if I was to go to all of you in the room today and say, would you like to pay for your services that you get from Google, Facebook, your email? Would you like to use money to buy all that? And in exchange, they can't take your data or they'll pay you for it. You might say, well, yes, for privacy reasons. But I guess that many of you would actually say, you know what? I don't want the hassle of having to use money to pay for it. I like getting free services. So the the reason I mention all this is really important. If you want to reform tech today and create a more ethical tech system, you don't necessarily need to abolish barter. You need to change the terms of trade of barter. And that means essentially giving consumers more power in that barter trade, which involves, one, more transparency, about how data is being used, more transparency about what the companies are doing inside the company with your data, and most crucially, and this comes back to the power of market forces, data portability. If we have the ability to pull our data out of any tech company and go somewhere else, we'd actually have the beginnings of a proper market for our service, for our us as customers. If you put the onus on tech companies to guarantee data portability, then you'd get the beginnings of a proper market. And I'll say two more things quickly. I think that competition would be more effective in giving consumers power and actually saying, you know what, I hate what Facebook has done, so I'm going to pull my data away and go somewhere else than it would actually be in terms of regulation. And there is a model for it already, and it's called finance. If you change your bank account today, the onus is on the bank to ensure that your money goes from one bank to another. It's not on you. You don't have to go and sort of basically physically, you know, get your pile of cash out and put it to another bank. That company is required to move move your money. That is what we should have for tech companies today, along with better oversight, along with looking at breaking up platform control and monopolies in terms of vertical platforms. But actually, that is why consumer power and competition matters. Convinced? Yes and no. Let me start with a no. Okay, I take that as a B plus. Well, you know, that's what you get with, you know, when you have an economist. On the one hand, on the other hand, you remember what Truman said? I want a one-handed economist. <laughs> um, 
I'm convinced that we need to change property rights over data, over personal data. So here we are on, and actually in, in, in my topic, um, other now, you'll find that there is a system called... Okay, so and if you haven't seen this. it, I'm going to show that no, I no, like no, Don't buy it, don't buy it. Just... <laughs> um, <laughs> There is, uh, you know, I, I describe various systems. One is, you know, how banking would work in my socialist market system and also how data should work. And I have a system where I, I came up with a, the, the, the label, a penny for your thoughts. So, you know, tiny micropayments that are automatically made by people so that they can also own their own data. So we are on, on the same page on this. But what you are suggesting is not, going, is not doing anything about the power of Facebook, anything about the power of Amazon, because let's face it, the reason why people are in Facebook is because everybody else is in Facebook. So it's economies of scale and economies of scope. And there's nothing you can do about that. Well, I mean, so the people who are on TikTok, they will be on TikTok because the people they follow are on TikTok. So these, these are the, the network economies, which I understand very well. And when it comes to Amazon, there is this technological structure that supports a whole economy that is non-market and based on power. And there's nothing you can do about that if you stick to the idea of liquid property that's owned and traded in uh, share markets. I want to uh, bring us to something else. And of course, feel free to come back to this. So we just need to sort of move through uh, a couple more cycles of, of themes, perhaps before we get to questions. It would be very remiss, I think, on the road to COP20 not to talk about poor old planet Earth and the impact of capitalism on, on uh, planet Earth and whether you think, Gillian, that green growth is possible. I know that you're a big... If you can be a big cheese, can you be, be a big cheese in ESG, a, a big environmentally friendly produced cheese in this area, suggest that you do believe in green growth. But there are many reasons, are there not, if we look around the planet today and uh, man-made global warming to say that capitalism has played a very negative role in that and to be rather sceptical. Yep, I'd come back to the fourth part of the Alan Smith framework I laid out about the need to have a shared ethical, moral, um, legal vision. And above all else, a theme that I go on about in my book, which is the need to move from tunnel vision to lateral vision. Most of the tools that we developed in the late 20th century um, to make sense of the world, like economic models, apologies, Yanis, because I know you're an economist, but these lovely economic models, these lovely corporate balance sheets, these lovely big data sets are all very bounded and marked by tunnel vision. You don't have to apologize because I agree with you. <laughs> well, I was trying to needle you. But, um, but they basically treat everything that isn't inside the economic model or the balance sheet as an externality or a footprint something outside that model. And what I would argue is that one of the things that went very badly wrong with a lot of the corporate vision and the um, economic models was treating the environment as an externality. They ignored who was going to pay for the damage that was created. But going back to the forest fires in Greece this summer, this is a failed state, right? But nevertheless, when it comes to profit-making, it's very fast. So the day after... We were devastated, and the flames died down. Large corporations came uh, and took over the attempt to prevent those uh, forests from uh, becoming mud baths with the first rains. So you think, oh, that's a good thing. They came to, to help uh, shore up the, you know, the soil and, and all that. The first thing they did was to offer 
contracts to the local population that effectively signed all their rights away for 20 euros a day. Okay. Forget that. That's... You could expect that. The second thing they did was they tried to win um, new contracts for replanting the forests using genetically modified trees that will grow very quickly and they will give them the opportunity to, in, in the context of the green transition, uh, harvest biomass for the purposes of you know, green energy. If we allow them to do this, you are going to have, under the cover of green growth, you're going to have the devastation of the flora and the fauna of the land, and the conversion of these areas in Evia and so on into fiefdoms of Monsanto Bayer, who will have genetically poisoned the land while making it very green. Now, is this the green growth that we want? This is the green growth that this market-based system, not because it's a market, but because it's, Monsanto is not a market. Okay, They're a toxic back. monolith. I'm going to ask you just very briefly, and I do want to go to, to questions. We should ask you to be late, but we can only... People here have got very busy social lives. We'll have to let them go at some point. Um, what about the wider world? You know, what about developing nations, China at the top scale of, of kind of importance in terms of, of, of its uh, economic outputs, India, and everything that flows from that? It can be a bit comfortable, perhaps, for Western progressives to sit in gatherings like this, sort of saying what they think should happen on green growth. Do you think you could persuade people in countries who feel that they've come later to the fruits of capitalism? Perhaps in China, yes, you can call it state capitalism, but it feels quite capitalist when you're in it, that they need to replace their economic model. I have no doubt that the, a large majority of people in India, in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in China itself, do not want to play catch-up with the West in the sense of you know, more cement, more environmental destruction, more destruction of their communities, more blocks of flats, you know, destroying their villages. I'm sure that they would like to be empowered. The difficulty that we have with people in India and Bangladesh is the same difficulty we have here in the United Kingdom, in Greece, in France, in Germany. And it is because you mentioned David Graeber. The difficulty is to move away from Thatcher's dogma of Tina, that there is no alternative to what David was saying, that everything could be different. Fantastic. What a great point at which to go to questions. You can ask all the things we didn't get to. Okay, let's go to the lady over here. Hello. Um... Can capitalism exist without exploitation? Because frankly, one of the arguments against capitalism is how exploitative it is for people. Great question. I think Bertolt Brecht wrote about 25 plays about it, so that's a really big question. Can I jump in there and say that? Can you? I'm not sure you can. I think I'm going to take the other gentleman first. Question. (laughs) Not because I'm in. I'm going to say I'm I'm like I'd be right down that. I think it's a great question. I'm just very conscious. We could stay on a little. We have one more question. Let's do this, this gentleman. My question is for Julian, so I hope you jump in onto this one. Um, You spoke about how there is sort of radical transformation of technology, and we have more information at our fingertips so we can decide better. But there was little discussion about the agency that people have. So Mm -hmm. three quarters of the world, or at least 40% of the world is living below the poverty line. So they don't really have the agency of choosing whether or not to interact with Google or whoever. Uh, So in that situation, can capitalism be counted upon that now I can choose to interact with a company or not choose to interact based on where I'm placed? It's not rather interrelated questions, as it turned out. Julian, first. The answer 
there is that I would argue, no, you can't rely just on capitalism alone to fix that. Definitely not. That's why you need government and regulation. Um, however, having better information is a good place to start and a good place to start getting people focused on trying to campaign for change and focusing on it. Because um, the point, key point is this. Can capitalism exist without exploitation? Not if you believe that any competition produces winners or losers. Um, and if you think that competition spurs people to compete harder, to fight harder and to innovate and help growth, then that's inevitable. But what you can do is introduce checks and balances to actually rein in the egregious levels of exploitation and competition and prevent the winners from abusing the losers um, and prevent that being recycled over generations. Absolutely. I would also turn it around and ask Yanis and say this. My experience of looking at systems which claim to be socialist or run on socialist systems, principles, is that they often have embedded insidious forms of exploitation, of inequality, but less acknowledged as well. I've yet to see a truly egalitarian socialist system. Well, look, I, I, where we will agree is that we cannot have a society which is free and worth living in and fighting for if it's not based on markets and competition. Here we can agree. Where we disagree is on, is on private ownership of things that are necessary in order to produce other things. Capital. This is where our disagreement is. Now, Gillian may very well say that, and she would be right, that a market which operates without private ownership of means of production has never been tried before. It's true. What I'm saying is it is time to go for it. Because the alternative, which is regulating the beasts of uh, um, this capitalist system, which I call techno-feudalism, by the way, um, for me, this is it's a question of which, is, going back to, the, to, to a previous uh, altercation, which is more utopic? To think that you can regulate this beast, which is running out of control and is seriously anti-liberal, anti-democratic. It's turning against the basic principles of liberalism. Remember, Friedrich von Hayek, the great guru of the libertarians, even of Thatcher, once said that, you know, socialists are not bad people, he said about us. Uh, the problem is that in order to enact socialism, they have to do, to do things that contradict their principles. I reverse that, and I'm saying that those who are advocating in favor of capitalism, they're not, you're not bad people. You want good things, and things that we share. But in order to do it, you will have to violate your own liberal principles. Let's take two more questions. I'm afraid that may be what we have time for in the hall. We later. have one more up here. Hello. Up here is, well. that another, is, is that the voice from up Yes, hello. All right, okay, I'll take pity. Three, they'll shoot me after. You know what's going to happen, don't you? Uh, the the uh, lady here, uh, then up there, and the gentleman. I'm afraid we will have to compress them into one glorious round of just a minute. <laughs> off you go. Thank you. So my question is directed to Yanis. So one of the main points with which you seem to differ with capitalism was on profits. So you've mentioned as another alternative for the government making money, just basically printing money, which of course is not a sustainable solution in the long term. So without companies being profit-driven in a competitive environment, what incentive do companies really have to then fund those governments? 
Right, hold that thought. Hello. Hello, thank you. Um, so my question is about power in both the vision, utopic visions that you've presented. And there's something about what you said that assumes that inequalities will be eradicated once capitalism is either fixed or um, completely taken over by something new. But that doesn't account for what Cedric Robinson has written about uh, racial capitalism and actually racial inequality and the Black Lives Matter movement, about it, which is very anti-capitalist. So in your mm-hmm. utopic models, what... How great, great, very good that you brought that up actually that would have been a big, a big miss if we hadn't had it I know sorry it's going to be extremely squeezed just the way our time has run but uh, you might both have a thought on that and I'll take the gentleman here as well just to uh, just wanted to get your views on uh, how much of um, the issue with capitalism might be the over financialization of it because we have a situation where global capital markets are now worth more than cumulative global GDP um, and where does this stop? Does this break at some point? Or will so, yeah, QE... So you dealt with that a bit earlier, didn't you? Okay. Yep. okay uh, right. Uh, please please range, range freely, but I would like to hear, certainly, you know, I would like to very much answer the second question because we didn't talk about it as much as we should. Sure. So who's going to have the last word? Oh, we'll just get on with it. Do you want to have a go so you can have Me. the last word? Me. <laughs> I don't know. It depends when the pub closes, but go. <laughs> No, no, I will go first. So, 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 so Gillian can have the last word. Oh, I see. Well, okay. Right. okay go on. So very briefly, I hate doing this, but I'll do it. Um, I explain this in the book. Seriously. You know, uh, just in case you haven't seen it I'm yet. I'm not saying that I'm explaining it in a convincing way, but my answer to your question is there. How can you have a fully functioning market-based system, which is technologically advanced, free, liberal, Democratic without capitalism. It's in there. I'm not going to try to emulate it. But let me say something about power, racism, and I will add patriarchy. I don't believe that we have the answers to these things. In my, in, yeah, this is a novel, and in it I try to make it absolutely clear that I do not believe that my side of politics, even my very quaint version of socialism, even if we manage to sort out all the problems with corporations, with uh, the power of capital to exploit, to reproduce itself and so on, that we can deal with patriarchy or racism. Discrimination runs very deeply in our societies. And you know, we can reduce the toxicity which always breeds more racism and more xenophobia and more sexism, but I'm pessimistic about human nature. We really need, uh, you know, I look into myself and I find a Nazi living in me, a racist living in me, a sexist living in me. I constantly have battles with me, with myself, and anybody who tells me that you're not like that, you're lying. We are all like this, we all have a dark side and we all need to fight constantly against it. I would say that one of the messages that anthropology tries to hammer home is that by immersing yourself in the lives of others who seem strange to you, you don't just get empathy for another point of view and a vision of how you could do things differently, you also get the ability to look back at yourself with more clarity and understand yourself. Because a fish can't see water unless they jump out of their fishbowl. 
And I think that's what we need to do today because we assume that the vision of capitalism that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years is the only vision of capitalism out there that could possibly exist. And that's simply not true. The profit principle, the competition principle, the idea of trade has been expressed in many different ways. Markets have been expressed in many different ways too. Yanis now appears to be defining markets as something that you can have in socialism. Great, bring it on, incorporate it back into a broader church of capitalism under that idea. But my key point is this, that actually it is possible to reimagine capitalism. It is possible to fix its flaws. It is not a perfect system. But capitalism and markets operate on the idea that you need to have a plurality of ideas and competition. You need to have checks and balances. Things move in cycles. And right now, we need to fix capitalism. And I would argue we actually could, with a combination of digital technology the fact you have more people empowered, the fact we're being forced to widen our lens beyond balance sheets to look at things like the environment and the very fact that we're having this debate today, tonight, where actually Yanis and I have probably ended up agreeing on more than we've been disagreeing on. The last question came in, so I'm going to actually squidge one in, not looking at the organisers in case they tell me to get off. But Lauren Santon had a great last question, and this one, fortunately, you can answer very few words. She said, please, because otherwise we'll get kicked out. Who will be the biggest players in determining whether we do fix capitalism, if it can be fixed? Thank you, Lauren. great question. Very last thought. Janice, then Gillian, and I'm going to take another vote. It can't be fixed because it has evolved out of itself. So no big players because it doesn't matter. Capitalism is not a problem anymore. I thought you were going to say... We have we another problem. Capitalism in the same way, if I'm right, right? In the same way that, you know, if we were having this discussion in, the, in 1800, how can we fix feudalism? The answer is it's not relevant. Capitalism is already taking over. Let's talk about capitalism. I would say in the 1800s. Similarly today, I'm saying capitalism is no longer relevant. It's dead. Everything else is utopic that we're discussing uh, about how we can fix capitalism so the by big means of social democracy, by means of you know, regulation and so on. It's a different beast we're facing, and we're all going to be victims of it. It's a highly illiberal okay, beast. Let's get Julian's final final word and then the vote. Uh, who are the big players in this fixing capitalism? Who is going to address it or fix it? Well, inevitably, the next generation. Yeah. Short and sweet. Absolutely. Great. Let's retake our vote. Let's see if anyone's changed their mind since the beginning of our energetic debate. Who thinks capitalism, albeit with tweaks and reforms and twiddles and regulation and whatever, is still the best economic system we've got? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't think that's as many as when we started, but I'm an entirely unfair judge. Um, And who thinks we need a completely new economic system? Well, I don't know, Pamela, what do you think? Uh, who's, who can give a view on ha- I think that was fairly... I think we lost... Do you think it would be fair? Who else is looking into the audience? Hannah, did you have a look? Do you, it's very hard to these judge from up here. These are boys' games. We should not be playing these boys' games. Who won oh, and who no. lost? Well, you said so that Alice doesn't believe in competition, and I do. So, <laughs> so by default, I win. <laughs> Speaking of, 
speaking as the patriarchy, <laughs> I think that uh, perhaps some votes went from that original proposition. I'm not sure where they landed because they seemed to come out. And it probably is down to the brilliance of us because it seemed to come out about 50-50 at the end. So there you are. Thank you so much to Yanis Varoufakis, to Julian Tepper. A great conversation. They came in from Athens and New York, and I came from Amwell Street. It's been great. Thank you all so much where you came from. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>